break, I indicated that we are still continuing with our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, that we are dealing with the death of some Israelites in the desert. So we indicated that the message of this section is that the enjoyment of God's blessings under good spiritual leadership will not shield you from God's judgment if you displease him. So this message, as we indicated, implies that we are being warned against the evil desires of the Israelites that the Lord killed in the desert. So we have examples of those desires. The first one is idolatry. Hence the command of verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 10, where it says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. The second that we began with was sexual immorality, as stated in verse 8, where it said, We should not commit sexual immorality. Now, sexual uh, sin and the, uh, that is mentioned here, associated with idolatry, we said it's probably because there is a great affinity between idolatry and sexual immorality. And so we indicated that a society that is pagan in its outlook seems nothing wrong, sees nothing wrong with sexual immorality. Furthermore, the apostle here might also have been concerned with a special form of sexual immorality that occurs in the pagan temples as part of their worship. And the apostle also is, uh, is concerned with uh, any sexual relationship outside the marriage bond. So the apostle indicated that not all Israelites were involved in sexual immorality as in the uh, sentence or the clause of verse 8 where it says, as some of them did. Now the apostle was concerned with the incident in the desert where the Israelites, in this particular case, their men, some of their men, were invited or, say, enticed to idolatry through sex by Moabite women, as recorded in Numbers 25, verses 1 through uh, 5, that we read a little bit and made a little bit comment uh, as that is the issue. Now, we also noted that it's really not different. I mean, it's not really that difficult to avoid sexual immorality. If people took proper precautions where they go and avoid places or situations, they will be tempted to sexual immorality. Now we also explained the difference between the 23,000 uh, that we have in our passage of study that died on one day and the 24,000 that Moses uh, mentioned in Numbers 25 verse 9. We explained that the difference is not what people want to use to attack the Bible but that the difference can easily be explained. That most Moses gave the total number, but God the Holy Spirit gave, through Apostle Paul, the number that died on one day. Whereby we say the remaining 1,000 most likely were those killed by the judges. Because God instructed them to kill some. So there's no conflict, no problem with that, if people uh, understood that. So the issue is that believers should avoid parties with unbelievers where there will be a free flow of alcohols and drugs and so on so that the believer will not be exposed to some unusual things and I have explained also in the, in the, during the full study of the first section that part of the thing is that it's people don't think or or at least they are, or they are naive or they pretend 
that uh, in, I use the illustration, a man is in the hotel and invites a, a lady to come see him in the hotel and, uh, and she doesn't think twice about that. Unless it's your father. But she says, another man, you have to think twice. What does this guy want to invite me to his room in the hotel? I mean, they would, you know, they, and they come out and complain this happened and that happened. No, you call for it. I hope you don't like those kind of statements, but I can back down from it. You call for it. So, the issue is that as believers, we should be wise enough not to put ourselves in a position where we'll be tempted to sexual immoralities. So, with that, we began the third example of evil desires or results, which is that Israel constantly doubted God's power and faithfulness to provide for them. It is with this that we begin in the clause of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9 in this second half. 1 Corinthians 10 9 says, We should not test the Lord as some of them did. Now before we examine the exhortation, we should note that there is a manuscript problem that leads to different readings of this exhortation in our English versions. Now the translators of the 1984 edition of the NIV among God has used the word Lord. When they say we should not taste the Lord. Well, however, the 2011 edition of the NIV and other English versions use the word Christ. In, instead of the word Lord. So that we have, for example, the new English translation. It reads this way. And let us not put Christ to the test. That's different from what you have in the 1984 edition of the NIV, but if you have the 2011 edition, it's the same thing that they have. So the question is, which of these two readings is in the original? Now here is the thing that we always have to remember, and that is why I don't preach, I teach. So that you, I explain things, so you understand where we're coming from. And that will help you to defend what you believe before people. So, People say, okay, you see, one of your versions says Christ, the other one says Lord, which is it? No problem, if you understand what I'm about to explain. Now, we do have what is called manuscript variations. And what that means here is this. The original text of the Bible, we don't have it anywhere. I mean, in terms of the New Testament, we don't have it. What we have are copies, thousands and thousands of them. But this is the problem. They did not have photocopying machines where they can, you know, Xerox pages and circulate. So, Amenesus or secretaries, they will write them out and send out. In the process of doing that, you know, like I say, if I put something on the board here and tell you to write it, I guarantee you, and I say, when you finish writing it, please, if it's long enough, at the end, give it to me. I can I guarantee you that if I read it, I will see a whole lot of things missing. That's just the way all people just put things. So that's why we have this manuscript variation. However, scholars have spent countless hours going through these manuscripts to do what is called textual criticism, to see this reading here, will it have been what's in the original? Or is there any uh, possibility that this is not the way it was? Now, good news about it is, when they did all that, that you can be sure that only about 2%, a little less than 2%, where there's some kind of difference, that is what much of anything in the Bible. But the good thing is that those 2% do not affect the Christian faith. In other words, 
you know, there's variation in those. It doesn't mean that there's some problem in what we believe. It may just be stories here. It's put this way and put that way. But the core teaching of the Bible is not affected by the textual variance. Anyway, so with that in mind, here is what we have to look at. Then is one version used the word Lord, the other version used uh, Christ. So which of these is correct? Uh, it is probably the reading that reflects Christ. Than the word Lord that was in the original text. That the word Christ and not Lord that was originally in the text. Now, so there are uh, several reasons for this position. First, it is the reading Christ that explains the origin of the other readings where. Some manuscripts have the word Lord or God. Now it's more likely though that the copies had difficulty in understanding how the Israelites of Exodus generation would have tasted Christ. So to handle the difficulty, they inserted the word Lord or God in the place of the word Christ. That must have been in the original. Also, it must have been easier for a copist to put the word Lord in place of Christ without thinking twice about it. When they are writing, copying, they just, Lord, yeah? Without thinking <laughs> twice about it. Second reason, second reason, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul had indicated in verse 4 of this 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians that Christ was with the Israelites in the desert. So, it is most likely that the apostle used the word Christ instead of the word Lord or God when he wrote 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9. Those were contained that were great. But then there's another thing. I thought reason. The oldest Greek manuscripts available to us that dates back to second and third century is called P46. And that just means P46. That manuscript contains the word Christ. The oldest known manuscript has the word Christ. So with all this we contend then that the reading that has Christ is one that reflects the original. Although, even if one uses the reading Lord, that will also be a reference to Christ. Since the apostle uses the word Lord routinely for Christ. So we haven't taken that. So the reading then that translates let us not put Christ to test, being the original written by the apostle has an implication. Now here's the thing. There are things you read in the Bible and come up with an implication. What I'm going to say wouldn't mean much if the word Lord or God is used here. But by using the word Christ, then it has an implication. The implication of the use of the word Christ is the apostle's way of conveying the deity of Christ. That's the implication. And people who want to say, no, it can't be Christ, it can't be Lord, they ship away that implication. But I say, no, we, we shouldn't. So we are saying that it is the apostle's way of communicating that Christ is God. Since it was well known among the Jews, that their forefathers tested God in the desert. As far as, for example, we read in Psalm 78, verse 56. Psalms 58, verse 56.
Psalms 78, verse 56. Psalms 78, verse 56. It is, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep His status. Now, so this deity of Christ is also communicated, even if instead of Christ, in 1 Corinthians 10 9, the word Lord is used. Since again, it will be referring for the Apostle Paul very rarely, unless he's quoting from the Old Testament. Whenever he uses the word Lord, he's always referring to Christ, unless he's quoting from the Old Testament. Nevertheless, since we have already justified the reading Christ, we contend then that it is you know, it's used by the Apostle is his way of conveying the deity of Christ. That's the importance of that reading in the original manuscripts. In any event, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle ex- exhorts us to avoid doubting Christ's power or faithfulness or care for his people as some of the Israelites that died in the desert did as in the first part of First Corinthians 10 verse 9 when he said, we should not taste the Lord as some of them did. Now to understand what we are being exalted to avoid, we need to understand what it is that some of the Israelites did. Described with the word taste. See the word taste here is translated from a Greek word that may mean to taste as in religious expert putting Jesus Christ to the taste in Luke chapter 10 verse 25. Luke chapter 10 verse 25 Luke 10 verse 25 and hold on to Luke it is on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life because the meaning of the word, the Greek word can mean to entrap, to, entra- to entrap someone, and that meaning is also possible, meaning that is used here by the experts in question that he directed to Jesus to try to entrap him. Anyway, the word, the Greek word may mean to subject them to test, in the sense of to tempt, to tempt in order you know, to do something wrong. As in the quotation of Jesus to Satan when he was tempting him in order to see if he was seen, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, verse 12. Luke chapter 4, verse 12. This is after Satan has quoted, the Lord quoted the scripture and Satan kept quoting also. Anyway, here's what the Lord says. Jesus answered, he says, in other words, Satan quoted a passage to Christ and Christ is correcting him. You're quoting it, but you're misapplying it. So he said, he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9, the sense of the Greek word is related to test, that is, to put to the test in order to ascertain the nature of something, including perfections, faults, or other qualities that one is trying to uh, find out. Now, Apostle Paul referenced a specific example in the subjects of testing the law that he, he cited that we'll get to shortly. But he must have also have remembered other occasions 
where the Israelites were said to have tasted the Lord. Consequently, he must have also recollected the incident of lack of water that Israel faced at Rephidim, during which they charged, they themselves were charged of testing the Lord, as recorded in, for us in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 2, verses 1 and 2. We just read it by the grace of God, if uh, the Lord says so. Um, we eventually get into detail of this in, one, in our Wednesday studies when, at the appropriate time. Anyway, this is what we have. Exodus 17, reads, verse 1 reads, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Refidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now this passage indicates that the Israelites had complained or scolded Moses because of lack of drinking water. Now the word quarreled here is translated from a Hebrew word that means, or they may mean to complain, as it is used to describe what the fathers or brothers may say to Israel because their daughters will have been captured and taken as wives by the surviving men of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, the context about what I'm going to give you in Judges 21 verse 22. Judges. The context is some hot heads had raped the concubine or secondary well, the wife of the a priest and she died. And the um, man, the husband, cut part of the woman's body and spread it to all Israel to show what a horrible thing that has happened. So Israel said to the tribe of Benjamin, give us this man, let's kill them. And they said, we're not going to give it to you. So Israel got angry and went after one tribe. And in, in the process, almost all of them were killed, the men, only about 600, I believe about 600 people were left. But there were no women. So if these 600 men don't have wives, that means the tribe of uh, Benjamin would die. die off. So the, the Israelites have made a vow that they are not going to give their daughters to them as wives because of what they did. However, they went in and there's a city, they went to Gilead or so on, and uh, fought there and killed a lot of people and captured women. Uh, I think the number they captured was about 400 women and gave to the people from the uh, tribe of Benjamin. So there was still some, uh, about 200 left. And so they said, well, we're not going to, uh, you know, we can't, we have taken it, but we're not going to give you our daughters. But what can happen is, you know, they have this celebration where they all dance. If you go there and capture <laughs> for your wives, if their parents, their fathers and brothers complain, we, we can defend you. But we're not going to give it to you. That's the background of what we're about to read here. It is, when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them because we did not get wise for them during the war. And you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So here the uh, issue is the word quarreled. The Greek word, I mean the Hebrew word used here is translated complain. Now in Exodus 17 verse 2 though, the Hebrew word simply means to quarrel. That is to be involved in angry argument or simply to scold. 
Now, in effect, Moses would have meant that the people were scolding him for lack of drinking water while they were at refeeding. Now, it is not only that Israel complained or scolded Moses, worse yet, they were charged of testing the Lord. In that quotation of Exodus 17, verse 2, where he said, Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, the word test here in the Hebrew is really translated from a Hebrew word that can mean to try, can also mean to test. But here, though, in Exodus 17, verse 2, the Hebrew word has the sense of to put to the test in order to ascertain the nature of something, including again imperfections, faults, or other qualities. Now the scolding of Moses or the complaint of the Israelites is considered as testing of the Lord in the sense of the people wanting to determine if the Lord was present or not. As far as they were concerned, is he present with us? This is what is indicated in Exodus chapter 17 verse 7. Exodus chapter 17 verse 7. It is and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not? Now the testing of God by the Israelites is condemned given in the previous uh, given the fact that the Lord has divinely provided for them and so Israel was commanded not to do that again. That they should not in any form test the Lord as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 16 and 17. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 16 and 17. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 reads, Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and the decrees he has given you. See, anyway, the verbal phrase put the Lord to the test in Exodus 17 verse 2 means to try to make God do something extraordinary in order to prove that he cares for his people. Now people praise the Lord in this way for one of two reasons. Because in the case of Israel, they want him to do something to prove that he cares for them. So I'm saying people do that kind of thing for at least two reasons. They have forgotten what God did for them in the past. And so, they call into question his faithfulness. In this case to them, as implied in the Lord's declaration regarding the Israelites who will not enter the promised land. As recorded in Numbers chapter 14 verse 22. Numbers Numbers Chapter 14 verse 22 We spent a lot of time in Numbers and so on Because Moses had these passages in mind When he wrote what we are studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 It is Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. 
In other words, God is saying, none of these men will enter Canaan. They have seen all this. I mean, can you imagine it? Can you, I don't, you know, just think about it. You go to the Gulf and suddenly it's, it's open. People pass through. After seeing that, and you come back and say, is God with us? Uh, can God really do that? Whatever it is that they were faced with. Now that is something that shouldn't be done. And if a person does it because they have forgotten, and so God says, they saw what I did, and they forgot, therefore, they're not going to go into that promised land. So the Lord really meant that Israel had doubts about his care and ability to take care of them ten times or several times despite the various miracles that he performed before them. So that's why people uh, would doubt the Lord. They forgot what he did. Now many times I've said this also that even in marriage relationships things go bad when people forget how good the other person has been to them. Yeah, he said, yeah, he has never been good to me, or she has never been good to me. Yeah, right. You just forgot. There's no such thing. Otherwise, why did you marry the person to begin with? Anyway, but we will not deal with that for now. So the thing is that people, we have this amnesia when it comes to what God did for us. As soon as we face something, which is, of course, Generally, what we are today, what have you done for me lately? You know, that's the kind of mentality we have. We forgot what he, that person did in the past. In this case, Israel forgot what the Lord did. Some of them, not all of them. And so, that's one reason people would doubt the Lord. Another reason people test the Lord in the way we have explained is that they refuse to obey His word. As was the case with the Israelites described in the passage that we cited previously. You don't have to write it down, but you just listen as I read it. Again, Psalm 78 verse 56. It reads, but they, they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. So the Israelites tested the Lord again and again. By continuous questioning of his faithfulness to them, in caring for them, and providing for them. So in effect, they constantly doubted his power. They also tested God by continuous rebellion against his word and all authority. So either way, because of those two reasons, they are in charge of testing the Lord. Again, though it is it's important that we continue to emphasize that not all the Israelites were involved in testing the Lord because of the clause that we're studying in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9 when it says, as some of them did. Now hence, there were some Israelites who did not test the Lord in the sense of challenging his faithfulness or doubting his care for Israel or doubting his power to act. Whenever you challenge the love of somebody for you, the care of somebody for you, you're bound to act differently in a wrong way too. Now, many, if you recall some of the things we studied in marriage, when we studied that, I, I did explain that. No woman in her right mind that has a, a husband that loves her will not do what he wants done. That the problem is because, as I said, a man has this great responsibility to actually prove that. In other words, it's not that you say to her, I love you, honey, whatever that is. That's not it. Close your mouth. Show her by your action. 
In other words, it's not that you tell a woman, I love you, or your wife, I love you. No. It's what you say by your action. That's what she sees. And that's how you convince her. And once you convince her, no doubting. Now when she gets into doubting, then uh, you know that there is a problem. And that problem is, in her mind, something is going wrong. That's what was going on with Israel. They have seen God's power. He has shown them what he can do for them. And yet, they did not believe him, or they started challenging, or they started doubting his faithfulness to act, and the power to act on their behalf. So, Israel's continuous complaining against Moses and the Lord was considered testing the Lord. So then he brought the judgment of snake bite. It is this case that the apostle had in mind when he wrote the last verbal phrase of where we're starting 1 Corinthians 10, 9, where he said, and we're killed by snakes. Now the word killed of the NIV is translated from a Greek word that may mean to destroy as it is used in the prohibition not to harm a fellow believer because of food, as stated in Romans chapter 14, verse 15. Romans chapter 14, verse 15. Romans chapter 14, verse 15 reads, If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Here we have the word killed, the Greek word translated killed in our passage. Here we translated destroyed. Now the Greek word may mean to kill, as it is used to describe the death of a rebel group in their leader, in, in, as far as Judah is concerned, when the apostles were being persecuted, um, Gamaliel used that Greek word in describing what happened as a part of his um, caution to the people not to do anything to the apostles. So we have that, the Greek word uh, apolemi used exactly in Acts chapter 5 verse 37. Acts chapter 5 verse 37. It is after him Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a, a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. That's a Greek word translated killed here. And all his followers were scattered. In our passage of 1 Corinthians 10, 9, the meaning of the word is to destroy, to destroy. Thus, the verbal phrase, we are killed by snakes, could be translated more literally, we are being destroyed by snakes. That is how it translates, we are being destroyed by snakes. Now, this reflects the use of an imperfect tense in the Greek. The imperfect tense here indicates that the destroying of some of the Israelites as God's judgment took place over a period of time until God graciously stopped it through the instruction given to Moses regarding the bronze snake. Now the word snake is translated from a Greek word that may refer to any of the various kinds of elongated, limbless reptiles moving about on their stomachs, as it is used in the Lord's promise to his disciples about the authority he gave them, as stated in Luke chapter 10, verse 19. 
Look. Look. Chapter 10, verse 19 reads, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now the word may be used figuratively for an evil or a dangerous person as the Lord Jesus used it to describe the religious leaders of his time while he was on this uh, planet as we read in Matthew chapter 23 verse 33. Matthew chapter 23 verse 33 Matthew 23 verse 33 It is you snakes and others in some kind right you see you brood of vipers See, that's, that's a time you have to use tough language to get people's attention. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, the Greek word may also mean serpent, figuratively, as a reference to Satan. As we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 reads, The great dragon was hauled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hauled to the earth, and his angels with him. So it is most likely that when Apostle Paul used a Greek word in the deception of Eve at the garden, that he used it to refer to Satan in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse three. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse three. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 reads, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpents, by the serpents uh, cunning, your minds may, show, uh, may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The serpent here is referring to Satan. Now these are the meanings of the Greek word notwithstanding. Apostle Paul used it in the sense of limbless reptile. That is a snake. As in the verbal phrase of where we are studying 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9 we say, and we are killed by snakes. Now the incident the apostle had in mind in, that, in the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10 9, when he said, and were killed by snakes, is really reco- recorded in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It is, they traveled from Mount Hall along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die 
in the desert. There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. That's the manna. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. The beef, the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is beaten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze stone a snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was beaten by a snake and looked at a bronze snake, he lived. Now there are three failures of the Israelites mentioned in this passage we should be careful to avoid. Now we will only uh, consider two of these since one of them grumbling against God and Moses is a concern of the passage we are studying in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. I mean verse 10. Now so a failure of Israel in this passage that we should avoid is being impatient or tired of waiting on God to meet our needs or to guide us according to his plan. We should avoid being impatient. Now this failure of Israel is given in the sentence of Numbers 21 verse 4 that I just finished reading. Again it says verse 4 reads, The people grew impatient on the way. Now the sentence, the people grew impatient, is literally the soul of the people became short. That's the way the Hebrew reads it. The soul of the people became short. Now this is because the expression grew impatient is translated from a Hebrew word that may mean to be short, to be short. As in the Lord's rebuke to Moses when he, in a sense, doubted how the Lord would provide meat for Israel and the Lord assured him he is powerful to do what he promised as recorded in Numbers chapter 11 verse 23. Numbers chapter 11 verse 23. It reads, The Lord answered Moses, Is the lost arm too short? You will not see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Now the Hebrew word may mean to be tired, to be tired. As something was with the nagging of, the, of Delilah to reveal the secret of his power, as we read in Judges 16, verse 16. Now, the nagging of a wife can be very troublesome. But men who are truly men, in that they are spiritual leaders of their homes, and they, not just in word, but in, in actual actions, they show it, this, this kind of people will not be moved by nagging. In other words, as long as you, you're standing on the truth, she can nag you all she wants. You don't budge. But that's not what happened with something. Anyway, so we read, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. 
You know, he just said, oh, I, he threw off his hand. Anyway. Now, the sentence he was tired to death is literally, his soul became short to die. That's what the Hebrew reads. His soul became short to die. However, in Numbers 21 verse 4 that we are looking at, the world has a sense of to become intolerant of waiting for an amount of time. Often, the amount of time is longer than expected or necessary. Hence, it means to be impatient. To be impatient. So, we should be careful not about him, but not waiting patiently for, the, for God to provide our needs or to direct us. Now, quite often, we mess up our lives because we are impatient to wait on the Lord to guide or to lead us. Now, this, of course, does not mean that we should never take actions in some situations, but that we be careful to ensure that we are acting in our cousins with God's word. Now that aside, the concern here is that we should learn to wait on the Lord until it is clear to us what he wants us to do. Or it is clear to us as how he provides or meets our needs. Now the Lord may not, I mean he may uh, meet our needs through a business adventure. But we have to be sure that that adventure is one that he wants for us. Or the need could be that of a spouse. So we should also be careful to ensure that the individual that comes across our path is his provision. For after all, the Lord provides the right spouse, as we read in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 14. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 14. It is houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, a prudent wife is a sensible wife, and that is what every husband wants. Now, you have to be careful here. I'm saying a sensible wife. Again, I go back to what we're studying in Ephesians chapter 5 when we spend all that, those weeks in marriage. And one of the things that we find that a sensible wife or the capable wife it's a blessing. Consider yourself a blessed man if you marry to that kind of woman. They are rare these days, but they are there. If the Lord provides one of them, thank Him. Thank Him. So, we are saying that a prudent wife is a sensible wife that every husband wants. Now, the reverse is also. The case that is, every wife wants a sensible husband. In the same way, if you're a wife and you have a sensible husband, thank God for that. Because today they are rare. They're getting rarer as people move away from the Bible. The truth can begin to be a little rough. So, what I'm saying is, if your need happens to be that of a spouse, then you wait patiently 
on the Lord to direct you to the right person and he will. So anyway, one of the three failures of the Israelites in the passage of Numbers 21 that we should avoid is being impatient or growing tired of waiting for the Lord to provide for our needs in his own way or leading us to what he wants us to do. A second of the three failures of the Israelites mentioned in Numbers 21 that we should avoid is not being content with what the Lord has provided us. Not being content with what the Lord has provided us. Israel failed in that they were not content or satisfied with God's provision of food as in their complaints in the last clause of Numbers 21, 5, when they say, and we detest this miserable food. Because how they describe the manner. God's perfect provision. Can you imagine? Except for those who died because of judgment. For 40 years, God provided them this food. There was no health problem. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'll just give you a preview of what's coming up when we get there. That, um, a lot of time we are making ourselves sick because of what we eat. But God provided these people the perfect food. No cholesterol problem, no none of those things, fat problem, none of those. Perfect. And what did they say? We detest this miserable food. Miserable food. Anyway, now the word detest though, is translated from the Hebrew word that means to abhor. That is, to find something repugnant. Now the word may mean to resent, as it is used to caution against having rotten attitude towards the rebuke or correction that the Lord gives us, as we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11 Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11 reads My son do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke Now discipline here is primarily correction or rebuke or warning the Lord gives you through his word. Primarily. He can discipline us also through some pain. Now his warning, no doubt may involve pain, that the Lord inflicts for disobedience to his word. Now the Israelites found God's provision of food repugnant, indicating they were not satisfied they also resented Moses' leadership so that God punished them through bites from snakes. Of course, not every Israelite was beaten by snakes, but some who probably were at the forefront of the three failures of Israel recorded in Numbers 21 uh, verses 4 through 9. Now our concern for the moment is that we should avoid their failures. Now this being the case, you should avoid not being content with God's provision for you. Avoid that. Not being content with what he has provided for you. For example, I keep going back because that's, I usually use husband and wife because that's what the Bible uses to show our relationship the church and Christ. So I'll keep going back to that. So, for example, you should not resent your spouse if indeed you believe God provided the person. I just read that in Proverbs 19 verse 14, right? If you believe that, 
It should never resent your spouse. Now someone may say that God did not provide a spouse. That is why the individual now resents his spouse. Well, the person was not forced to marry the spouse, so it would be wrong to think that way. Now even in arranged marriage, we do see that in that case, that such a person should recognize that God is in control. So, he was also behind the arranged marriage. So anyway, it is a failure that is similar to that of Israel, that a person who resents the spouse commits. In other words, you are really not saying, I resent this miserable husband of mine, or miserable husband of I mean, wife of mine. You're not saying it in words. But that's what you're doing. If you resent your spouse for any reason, that's what you're doing. Same thing. Now, so we have to be careful about that. Anyway, another provision that every, uh, every believer should be careful about resenting or not being satisfied with is spiritual leadership. Now, if you resent your spiritual leadership, you are in effect putting yourself in the same position Israel was when God sent snakes to buy some of them. Now, the Lord may not send a snake to bite you, but you can be sure that he will judge you for such failures as he judged Israel. Now if you are already guilty of this, you can spare yourself from God's further judgment through repentance. For after all, those of the Israelites who were beaten by snakes survived when they followed God's instruction regarding the bronze snake. Now the action it's an act of faith that implies they change their mind about God and Moses so they obeyed Moses' instruction and consequently they lived. My point though is this that we should be careful to avoid two of the three failures of the Israelites in the passage of uh, Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. Since, of course, we will deal with the third one later. In any case, we have indicated that Israel's failure was testing the Lord, which we have indicated meant they doubted his ability to do what he promised. Thus, they questioned again and again his faithfulness to them in caring for them and providing for them. We also noted, it is a sin to test the Lord or to put him to the test. Now this assertion, that is a sin to put the Lord to the test, may cause problem. To the examples we find in the scripture, in which either God invited believers to test him, or he was not angry that he was tested. In effect, the question then comes unto this, when is it correct to test the Lord? When is that correct? Now to answer this question, we need to exa- examine the examples in which either God invited humans to test him, or where he was put to test by humans without him being angry. And as you will guess, that we do next week. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet that if you die now, you go straight to the lake of fire. Why? Because you're not saved. You may have been a religious person. You go, you've been to church. You've been even baptized. 
But that doesn't mean you have, you have life. If you're such a person, the good news is that God loves you. That you're still alive. And here's what he did for you. Love is an action. It's more seen in his action. So he showed you his love. Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Think about it. The God, the Son of God, he left the glories of heaven because he loved you. He doesn't want you to go to the lake of fire. He has designed as a most horrible place of suffering. Not with his body, with a different body, but the same person, the soul. It is so horrendous. That he could live and make that kind of sacrifice to lower himself so he can elevate you to sonship. He did all that because he loved you. And so when he came, he demonstrated that he is the Son of God through his miracles, through his teaching. And at the end, when it was time for him to return to heaven for this. Lamb of God to carry away the sins of the world. The Jews came to arrest him, not knowing what God's plan is. But when they came, they simply asked him, Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. That is God's spoke. And they all fell to the ground. They gave them permission. Which meant, if he didn't want to be arrested, he could say in the same. But he gave them permission. Because he knew. He came for a purpose. And that purpose is to go to that cross and die for my sins and your sins. And so, after all trials, they nailed him to the cross. In all everything he suffered, we are told by secular historians that if you knew Jesus Christ, before he went to the, inside the praetorium, you will not recognize his face after he came out. Because he was so disfigured by beating of the type that's unimaginable. The Romans were so cruel people that they designed those whipping mechanisms where they have spikes. And so they would hit and draw blood. Yet Christ never even for a moment flinched. They nailed him to the cross. He didn't flinch. But the last three hours when my sins and your sins were being poured on the Son of God, it was so unbearable. That he let out that cry, Eli, Eli, Lomashamakatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you have life through his name. If you believe, he is God man. God who came to this planet, took on a human form, so he could go die for your sins. He died, was buried, and rose again the third day. He is the resurrection and life. Anyone who comes to him, even if he dies, he will continue to live. That's what he promised. So believe in him and escape God's coming judgment. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will cause us to avoid situations where we may find ourselves being unfaithful to you through sexual immorality. Help us to be those who do not doubt your goodness at any time. Help us to know how to patiently wait for you to unfold your plan. All of this we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.